0: Welcome to the Science of Success with your host, Matt Bodner.
2: Welcome to the Science of Success. I'm your host, Matt Bodner. I'm an entrepreneur and investor in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm obsessed with the mindset of success and the psychology of performance. I've read hundreds of books, conducted countless hours of research and study, and I'm going to take you on a journey into the human mind and what makes peak performers tick with a focus on always having our discussions rooted in psychological research and scientific fact, not opinion. In this episode, we have an awesome guest on the show, Shane Parrish. We discuss mental models, cognitive biases, go deep on decision-making and how to improve and build a smarter decision-making framework. And we look at a number of key mental models that you can add to your mental toolbox. Because the science of success keeps on growing with more than 350,000 downloads, hitting the front page of new and noteworthy, and much more, we've been giving away a $100 Amazon gift card to our listeners every month. This month, we've got another winner. Lucky listener Jen Embers wins this month's Amazon gift card. Congratulations, Jen, and thank you for listening to the science of success. Do you want to be the next lucky listener? To enter to win a $100 Amazon gift card, all you have to do is text the word smarter. That's S-M-A-R-T-E-R to the number 44222. Again, that's smarter to 44222. And if you want to get 10 extra entries into the giveaway, all you have to do is leave a positive review on iTunes and email me a screenshot of that review to Matt at That's M A T T at scienceofsuccess.co. In our last episode, we had a great conversation with Jordan Harbinger, the host of the Art of Charm podcast. We explored how you may be oblivious to the secret networking rules around you and what you can do to avoid the biggest mistakes and pitfalls when building relationships with influential people. If you want to take your relationships to the next level, listen to that episode. Shane Parrish is the founder and author of the Farnham Street blog, which has been featured in Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, The Financial Times, and much more. It's one of my personal favorite blogs and an incredible resource dedicated to making you smarter every day by mastering the best of what others have already figured out. Shane, welcome to the Science of Success. Thanks for having me, Matt. I'm excited to be on. We're super excited to have you on here. So for listeners who might not be familiar, Tell us a little bit about what is Farnham Street and and what do you talk about on the blog?
3: Oh, there's so many ways to describe it, but a friend of mine put it best when they said it was an online intellectual hub for people uh, who are rediscovering their curiosity and want to be better uh, in a non self-helpy way, but want to be better at solving problems, removing blind spots, exploring life. Um, I think that about encapsulates. The blog. We talk about everything from art and philosophy to the science of decision making to what it means to live a meaningful life to what it means to be a good friend and how you can go about doing that and how you can learn from other people and not only learn from other people, but learn from their mistakes. Like, I'm very open about some of the mistakes that I've made about being a good friend. Um, And some of the decisions I've made have factored into how we think about decision-making. So I think that it's just an online intellectual resource for people who are consistently looking to gain an edge over somebody else.
2: And how did you initially become kind of interested in this subject? Oh, it started back with my MBA, and it wasn't
3: really anything that I thought would turn into what it has become today. Originally, when I started my MBA, we were focused on, well, I was focused on doing my homework and, you know, passing and all of this stuff and getting good grades. And then all of a sudden it became pretty apparent to me that a lot of the schools, and I won't mention names, have become check cashing institutes where somebody, usually a corporate sponsor, sponsors an employee to go get an MBA And the schools have a a large incentive to allow those people to get MBAs. And so what happens in between is almost irrelevant. As long as those people get MBAs and the school gets a big check, uh, the learning became secondary. And so I took it upon myself originally to start learning on my own. Uh, And then this is the manifestation of that. Like I said, it was never intended to be what it is today. It's a lot of luck, a lot of happenstance, a passionate group of like, I don't know, 80,000 readers. And it's kind of taken off
2: from there. So kind of the the tagline or the subheading for the blog is mastering the best of what other people have figured out. Yeah, I'm not I mean I'm
3: not smart enough to figure out everything myself. So how do we learn? We learn a lot through reading, we learn a lot through experience, but there's only so many things that I can experience in life. So I want to try to learn from mistakes of others, the epiphanies of others, the insights of others and that'll give me kind of a cumulative advantage over a long period of time in terms of the knowledge that I can accumulate and how I apply that
2: to problems. You know, that's an interesting, uh, when you say cumulative knowledge, the, uh, I've heard an analogy before that it's almost like compound interest. You know, when you start to read, you kind of build this knowledge base and this framework uh, that you can continually sort of layer new knowledge into. It's like someone can't just read two or three books that you read recently and kind of catch up to where you were before.
3: Yeah, definitely. And it depends on what you're learning and what you're reading, right? I mean, all of that factors in. There's almost a half-life to knowledge and you want to learn if you're going to apply yourself and you have an opportunity cost to your time, you want to start learning things that either change slowly over time or don't change at all. Unless you're in a niche field where, you know, you have to keep up with the latest neuroscience or research in a particular field, it makes more sense to apply yourself broadly to things that change slowly over time. And then use those tools to reduce your blind spots when making decisions, when connecting new things and for creativity and innovation and solving problems, and then also for how to live a meaningful life.
2: That's a great point. The idea of of mastering or focusing on things that that change slowly or don't change at all. What would you say are some kind of, you know, types of knowledge that would fall into that category?
3: Well, I mean, if you look back in history, we have this big bucket of time, right? We have psychology, which is everybody thinks is this great knowledge to have. But it's fairly recent that we, we've discovered these heuristics and biases. And, but physics has been around for a long time and chemistry has been around for a long time. And these laws don't change much over time. I mean, our, our heuristics and biases are important to understand. But you also want to merge them with other ideas, And I think that where people go astray is when you go to the bookstore and you pick up the best-selling book. And we have every incentive to pick up the – I call them pop psychology books. But the pop psychology book of the day because we feel educated. We feel like we're learning something. We feel like we're moving forward. And it's on a subject that's usually topical, that's in the news. And then what happens inevitably over time is those books disappear and the the study either gets disproven or there's contrary evidence. It doesn't end up being knowledge. So you end up spending your time, whether you believe it or not, you you spend your time entertaining yourself. And I think it's, it's great to entertain yourself. You just need to be aware of when you're reading for entertainment, when you're reading for knowledge, when you're reading for information. And the way that you approach those subjects should differ. And your goals in terms of how you get better throughout your career or what you want to do is also will lead you to different sources of information.
2: I love the idea of focusing on kind of going back to the hard sciences, right? And that's something that someone who I know you're a big fan of and I'm a big fan of, Charlie Munger, talks about a lot kind of, you know, focusing or thinking about biology, uh, physics, really those it, those core fundamentals and then branching out more and more into kind of the things that are built on top of that.
3: Yeah, Munger is the source of a lot of inspiration for me in terms of just the way that he approaches problems. And when you think about the world, it is multidisciplinary. So if you don't understand the big ideas from other disciplines, how can you synthesize reality? How can you remove your blind spots? And how can you gain an edge or make better decisions that other people miss if you don't understand those big ideas from different disciplines and these ideas are understood at different levels and you hone them over time it's not something that you you just conceptually grab you read a chapter in physics one night and you you know you understand gravity it's something that you develop over a long period of time and you you hone those ideas and i think that you when you encounter new information you, you start mapping it to what you already know. And this is where the Munger's concept of the lattice work of mental models comes in, where you start saying, oh, you start seeing people make decision-making errors. And you can say, oh, that's confirmation bias. Oh, that's anchoring bias. That's great. It gives you insight. But those those are heuristics. Those are great. But it also gives you insight into, oh, well, they're operating outside their circle of competence. I'm operating in a complex adaptive system. This is, you know, there's supply and demand effects here. And then when you kind of go through this mental list of models that you have in your head from other disciplines, including ecology, investing, business, heuristics in terms of psychology, mathematics, statistics, chemistry, physics you can usually gather in your mind mentally the variables that will control the situation, right? Momentum is an incredible variable that people underestimate a lot of time. That's a concept from physics. Um, Statistics in terms of sample size and distribution and mean and medium and understanding the difference between those things enables you to make better decisions. And it enables you, more importantly, It enables you to reduce your blind spots, which I guess in the end is how we make better decisions. We all have a certain aperture onto the world, and that aperture is not a 360-degree, almost holographic view of what the problem is. But by reducing our blind spots, we've come to a more complete knowledge of the situation. And that knowledge enables us to make better decisions, avoid stupidity, which is also an important outcome, and then go
2: forward. So backing up slightly, can you kind of define or dig in a little bit more on the concept of mental models? It's something that we've we've mentioned briefly on the podcast, but some listeners may not be familiar with it.
3: Well, so in my mind, I mean, there's two types of mental models. There's the psychological mental models, which are how we deceive ourselves. And those would be kind of like the heuristics that are, you know, popular today. There's like availability, there's confirmation bias, there's anchoring bias, hindsight, overconfidence, and so on and so forth. And then there's kind of like the time simulations. And these are also heuristics, which are important to understand in some senses, right? Where You know, there's gravity. If I drop a pen, I know what's going to happen, but I'm simulating time. So understanding that and understanding feedback loops and redundancies and margin of safety and the prisoner's dilemma and understanding how these things play out over time enables us to fast forward through time and see the most probable outcome when we're making a decision. It doesn't mean it's a guaranteed outcome. I mean, there's some things that are pretty guaranteed, like gravity, but it gives us a better aperture into the problem that we're trying to solve. And also enables us to recognize intuitively that there's other outcomes that are maybe less probable, but still possible.
2: So can you think of an example of applying some of these mental models in a challenge or problem that you've faced recently?
3: Well, one of the mental models that we use a lot is circle of competence. And circle of competence enables you to just knowing where you're competent and where you're incompetent enables you to make a better decision. I'll give you a kind of high-level overview of how that works. If you're accurate in your circle of competence and you keep, say, a decision journal or something like that, you'll be able to hone that over time and you'll be like, well, when this type of decision comes up, like an investment decision in an airline company, I have a really high batting average. I would say that that's within my circle of competence. But We all can't sit back like Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett, and basically wait for the fat pitch that's within our circle of competence. Most of us have this pragmatic reality where we have to make decisions outside of our circle of competence. But if you recognize that you're outside of your circle of competence, you approach the decision in a different way. And what I mean by that is... Now you start, instead of becoming overconfident, you start recognizing that other people's opinions may be valuable. Instead of recognizing or instead of thinking that you have all the information, you start seeking disconfirming evidence to the belief that you hold because you know you're not operating within the circle of competence. So just a knowledge of a circle of competence and where you make good decisions and where that boundary is enables you to proceed in an area outside of your circle of competence and still make better decisions than you would have otherwise.
2: And in that example, circle of competence is essentially one quote unquote mental model in the, in the toolbox, right? The goal is essentially to build kind of a a toolbox of tens, if not hundreds of potential models that you have kind of deeply uh, internalized in a way that's almost intuitive so that when you encounter a problem, you can naturally kind of pluck. The, you know, four or five most appropriate models for understanding that particular situation.
3: So I think about it like you're a craftsman,
2: right? And you show up to the job. And
3: if you have a hammer, there's a limited set of problems you can solve. There's a limited amount of creativity that you can have with raw materials. The more tools you have, and the tools and the knowledge industry happen to be, you know, sometimes mental models, and sometimes they're very niche, right? You don't always need to be a broad, generalist thinker. Oftentimes, the most rewarding professions, like neurosurgery, or lawyers, tend to be very niche in terms of how they think about the world and the problems that they try to solve. The rest of us have to operate in a lot of ambiguity, in the sense of we're solving problems that may not be as narrowly defined. We may not be in such a niche where we've studied it for 15 or 16 years and we have to get on this treadmill to kind of keep up with it, but we're solving general business problems. And then the the problem becomes, how do you solve those problems better? How do I become better at my job? How do I become more valuable as an employee, as a knowledge worker? And I think the answer to that is acquiring more tools to solve different problems but more importantly, by solving different problems, you're often avoiding different problems. I mean, we, we teach a course on productivity, and one of the biggest sources of productivity that really not a lot of people think about and is very counterintuitive is that the best way to be more productive is actually to make better decisions. Because when you think about how most of us spend our days, we're spending so much time just fixing mistakes and solving Problems that we've created um, by rushing our decisions, by not thinking about them, by not doing something that we, we could have done to change the outcome. So, the best way to get free time is to make better initial decisions. And when you think about that, it makes a lot of sense, but most people don't frame it that way. So, if you want to start making better decisions, one of the best ways to go about that is to understand the problem. And one of the best ways to understand the problem and understand reality is to be able to synthesize it, you want to be able to look at the problem from a three-dimensional point of view. And if reality isn't multidisciplinary, then I don't know what it is.
2: And when you say reality is multidisciplinary, um, can you elaborate on that so that listeners who might not be as familiar with kind of Munger and his conception of worldly wisdom know what you're talking about?
3: Yeah, I think, like, you can't just look at one background. Like, if you have a psychology degree, the world isn't only psychology, right? It's also physics. It's also math. It's also biology. All of these things factor into most of the problems that we look at. And our goal is to, I mean, as a decision maker in an organization, not only do we want to make more effective decisions, want to recognize when we're making decisions outside of our circle of competence or that multiple disciplines might factor into Psychology is great in terms of corporate decision making, but it may underplay supply and demand. It may underplay switching costs. If you don't have a grasp of these concepts and you don't have an intuitive nature about how to handle them or how to structure them in your mind, then you become what you know, Munger says is the one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest, right? You're handicapped in life. And then people will run circles around you. And that may be fine and that may not be fine. And that all depends on your, your makeup and what you kind of want to achieve and how you want to live your life.
2: And I think in many ways economics is a, is a field that's uh, often criticized for sort of failing to understand or take into account the implications of other disciplines, with the uh, with the example, I know I think there's a psychology book where they talk about the difference between econs and people, where it's what an economist would say, how someone would behave, and how they actually behave in the real world.
3: Yeah, I, I don't think I knew enough about the discipline of economics at that level to kind of comment on what the economists think. I think there are economists out there who think in a very multidisciplinary manner. Uh, Greg Mankey from Harvard, I think, would be one of those people who think that way. And Munger has pointed out that his textbook thinks about economic problems in a multidisciplinary way. I think his criticism was he doesn't actually point out um, that he's thinking about them in a multidisciplinary way. And I think there's a lot of lessons that the rest of us, especially those of us who operate in mid to large sized corporations, can learn from business about the time value of money and investment returns and marginal costs and most importantly, probably opportunity cost, which is a lesson that all of us can learn in the sense of you live one life and you can trade time for money and that's fine. And you can also trade money for time. And Buffett had a quote where he said the rich, I forget the exact words, but the rich are always trading money for time, whereas the poor are trading time for money. And when you think about that, that comes down to opportunity cost. And most of us, like, say, for example, you live in the suburbs or you live somewhere where you have a long commute. Most of us view that as a cheaper way to live. But do we factor in, and the important question is, do you think about the time it takes to commute? Do you think about the two, maybe the two and a half hours a day that you're spending in the car, and how do you value that time? And when you start factoring that in, it kind of changes the dynamics of what you're thinking about in terms of cost and value. Example would be reading. If you're reading something, you're not reading something else, right? So if you're reading Gawker or whatever, Buzzfeed, or I don't even follow most of the media today, but if you're reading the latest news, that's great. It's keeping you up to date on current events, but it means you're not reading something that's enduring that doesn't change, right? So there's an opportunity cost to everything we do. If you go to lunch with a friend, maybe you value that a lot, which I do personally, And, you know, if you sit and do nothing but read the newspaper, you might value that. And it becomes just knowing what's valuable to you and knowing how it helps you achieve the goals that you're trying to achieve or how it entertains you or gives you some sort of downtime, which is also an important cost. But there is an opportunity cost to everything. And I think people underestimate how important that concept is to grasp, right? Well, you're while you're watching Netflix, you're not doing something else. And if somebody else is doing something else that makes them better or more valuable or more knowledgeable, eventually, over time, you're going to lose the edge that you have. And I think that's important to
2: realize. I definitely have the same sort of perspective about most news and most current events. You know, I barely read any sort of news sources and mostly what i read are blogs like farnham street or things that really talk much more deeply about you know to use the phrase that you use things that don't change over time right you know you can fill your head with a bunch of news six months later that most of that stuff is irrelevant whereas if you fill your head with these mental models
3: like when you think about how we consume information most people, and I'm generalizing here, are consuming articles like 10 Ways to Get Promoted at Work or whatever the clickbait headline of the day is. And what's really funny is I've talked to to some of my friends who, who are like this, and they love it. They do it for entertainment. That's great. But they're often like, you know what's really interesting is I click on the same article two days in a row, and it's just got a different headline but I don't really recognize that I'm reading the same article until like the last paragraph when something kind of jumps out at me. So they're going through these 800 to, you know, 1500 word articles and they're not actually remembering that they've read it yesterday. So what are they doing? I mean, that's just a form of entertainment at that point. And then anybody who's promising the world is not going to deliver that. There's no four steps you can take to guarantee your employment. There's no six ways to negotiate with your boss to get a raise. I mean, there's tips and there's tricks and there's probability involved in terms of, well, if you employ this, and I know one person who teaches about how to get a raise at work. And, you know, one of the main factors that he's giving people is the courage to ask for a raise. But he's not actually giving them a tool that they develop, right? He, he's basically saying, you need to ask for a raise. And a lot of them get a raise when they go and ask for a raise. And that's fine. But he, what is he teaching them long term? Maybe it's self-sufficiency. Maybe it's that I can ask for things I want. We want to teach people things that don't change over time, that apply to a wide variety of problems, from everything from innovation to decision-making I mean, we factor into corporate mergers and acquisitions. We've been cited in SEC filings. There's a whole bunch of stuff that we want Farnham Street to be, but it, it really boils down to giving you more tools that you can use over a year, over two years, over three years that enable you to be better at whatever it is you want to be better at. And part of that is just recognizing when you're reading things for entertainment or information and when you're reading things for knowledge. And when you're reading things for knowledge, you want to slow down. When you're reading things for entertainment, you might want to speed up. But it's not to say that one is better than the other. I don't think we're making that decision for people. We're just giving them an alternative.
2: Accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again.
2: You know, it's funny you mentioned the story about somebody reading the same article and not realizing it. Uh, one of the things that that we talk a lot about on the podcast and that I'm a big fan of is meditation. And, you know, I mean, it may not be for everyone, but one of the beautiful things about meditation is that it kind of gives you that, that inner dialogue to sort of check your thoughts and be like, hey, what's happening, right? And so if you start, you know, sometimes I'll get sucked into like a loop of reading a bunch of stuff on Reddit or something like that, and then I'll, my mind will kick in and be like, your what are you doing like pull out of this you know pull out of this dopamine loop and I'll like pull out and be like all right I got to stop doing that
3: yeah but that that comes back to a feedback loop which is also an important concept from like engineering right so the mental model is that you've created this either intentional or unintentional feedback loop that enables you when you go astray or do something you're not wanting to be doing to just check in and be present, right? We all make decisions. It's whether we make them consciously or unconsciously. And a lot of us just spend that time, I would say unconsciously, which is fine, but you've enabled yourself to kind of be like, Oh, is this how I want to spend my time? And that feedback loop enables you to make different decisions about consuming information it might mean that you go back to reddit and you start reading more and it might mean that you're like what the hell am i doing i want to do something else and i want to i want to spend my time differently but just that in and of itself that feedback loop that mechanism to kind of switch from unconscious to conscious is one of the most incredibly valuable things you can have and i would say meditation probably is the foundation for much of what i do Uh, I don't meditate every day, but I do meditate on a regular basis and it enables me to structure my time better and enables me to clear my mind. And have moments in my life that are device-free, that are quiet, that are calm, that are soothing. And it's made me respond to situations in a different manner than I would have in the past where I might have had more anxiety or stress about a certain situation. Now uh, it's enabled me, I would say, to become more stoic about it and just accept the world for the way that it is instead of pushing back against things that I think are unfair or unjust and just accepting that that's the way it is and that is unproductive kind of energy and my mind get clouded with some of the stuff like that before I started meditating, before I started yoga and now it's become a lot more clear in terms of the path that works for me.
2: Uh, It's funny that you mentioned stoicism because we have a whole episode about the idea of accepting reality. You know, the same concept of doesn't matter if it's fair. doesn't matter if it's just it's all about, you know, accept things the way they are so that you can move beyond them. Yeah.
3: I mean, Joseph Tussman has this amazing quote, and I think it becomes about this. And he says, what the pupil must learn if he learns anything at all is that the world will do most of the work for you, provided you cooperate with it by identifying how it really works and then aligning with those realities if we do not let the world teach us, it teaches us a lesson. And I think that's one of the most profound things that I've come across in a long time. And I think that enables us to think about, am I confronting the world or am I accepting it? And if I'm accepting how it works, that's a bit of a feedback loop into checking what I think and checking my approach to life. And that feedback loop over a long period of time should compound and enable us to better align with reality. It's not something like you don't go to bed Thursday night and wake up Friday morning and be like, I'm going to align myself with the world. You just start opening your eyes to how the world really works, how it operates, the different outcomes and understanding that outcomes are not necessarily guaranteed and they're a function of probability. And we all have periods of bad luck. And then you enable that over time to slowly learn to roll with the punches.
2: It's amazing that Once you've kind of gone down the road of internalizing and really starting to understand many of these different mental models, it's almost like, you know, I'm thinking about I was in a meeting last week uh, in kind of a sales meeting. And, you know, it's amazing how I can just immediately sort of see it's like they're using this bias and they're doing this thing. And it's like you start to kind of build this framework where you can subconsciously just capture that stuff.
3: Yeah, totally. And I mean, the flip side to that is biases are biases for a reason. I mean, they work most of the time, right? They're heuristics because they work, you know, 90, 99% of the time. Our goal is to kind of recognize when they're leading us astray. Which is why there's frameworks for decision making that enable you to just check and balance that, right? And one of the questions that you should ask yourself is like, where am I leading myself astray? Where might I be fooling myself? And that's when you kind of check your biases and your heuristics yourself, and start thinking about, oh, well, it's a really small sample size. Should I be basing, you know, a five hundred million dollar merger on, you know, two years of track record from this other person? And then just enabling those questions usually generates a better outcome, but not always, right? I mean, you really have to think about this stuff. And when you think about how we structure our days, how we structure our time, most people don't take the time to make good decisions. And what I mean by that is like they're not making a conscious choice to make bad decisions. They're just setting themselves up for failure. Think about the, you know, generalizing it again. Think about the modern office worker. They work, you know, let's say for the sake of argument, they work nine to five. They show up they got to drop off the kids first. It's a hectic morning. They get in a little later than they want. It's 8.35. They open up their email. They have a 9 o'clock meeting, but they got to go through like 30 emails before them because some people have shown up earlier, and then they've redirected their time. And then they realize that it's 8.55, and they have a 9 o'clock meeting, and they're supposed to make a decision on something. So they, they pull up the document that's the briefing on the decision they're supposed to make, and they have five minutes. So what do they do? They read the executive summary. And they go to the meeting, and they base their decision on the executive summary, which most times will work. It's another kind of heuristic, right? But often it leads us astray because we don't do the work behind the scenes to understand the decision, to understand the dynamics of the problem, to understand things. So one of the other ways that you can increase productivity, and I guess it leads into making better decisions, is to schedule time to think about the decision. I mean, that's very counterintuitive. We mention it in our productivity course, which is bewaymoreproductive.com. But it's incredible to me the amount of people who show up to work and just let email dictate their day. And they they rely on their, I guess, their wits or their, you know, spur of the moment judgment to make decisions. And, you know, 90% of the time that's going to work for you. But the 10% of the time it doesn't work for you is going to consume most of your time going
2: forward. So for somebody who's listening right now. What would you say are some concrete things they might be able to do to, you know, kind of immediately start improving their ability to make smarter decisions? Well, I think one
3: of the things that you can do is if you're unsure of the path forward is to invert the problem, right? And to invert the problem means think about what you want to avoid and If you're avoiding those outcomes, you've already come to a better conclusion than you would probably otherwise have. But that's not the best way to make better decisions. I mean, the best way to make decisions is really to understand the problem and understand the dynamics. And part of that is recognizing when you're operating within your circle of competence when you're not. And if you're the head of an organization, then it's understanding how people learn from each other you might have say you have 100 people in your organization somebody's got a circle of competence in x somebody's got a circle of competence in y often the way that we facilitate decision making is in a way that x doesn't learn from y and y doesn't learn from x but eventually x or y quits and retires and then the other has to make a decision but they haven't learned even though they've worked with the same person for 10 or 15 years They haven't actually learned how they structure decisions, how they think about the variables that govern the decision, what the range of outcomes could be, and and how to hone that attention. And this becomes really fascinating to me because I know a lot of investors who, you know, they read everything about a company, which I get, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. But when you really know the variables that you're looking for, you're able to filter the information a lot quicker when you understand the situation. You know, they could put out 6,000 pages of press releases and documents a year. You don't necessarily need to read every word of it. What you want to look for is, do the variables that I know, what are they? What are they saying? Are they indicating that we're on the right track? If yes, all things are probably good. Uh, And yeah, you want to seek disconfirming evidence. And most of us consume media. This is another interesting and possibly important point about how we consume media. We concern... We consume things that tend to reaffirm what we already think instead of consuming things that disconfirm what we think. And if you go back to Charles Darwin, he wasn't, you know, he had this amazing discovery, which is probably some degree of luck and some degree of him being uh, able to disprove himself. So one of the tools or tricks that he had in his toolkit was Every time something disagreed with him, instead of glossing over it, he paid attention to it. And think about the way that we consume media today. We don't consume media like Charles Darwin. We consume media like, oh, well, if I'm a pro-Trump supporter, I'm going to read pro-Trump articles. If I'm a pro-Hillary supporter, I tend to be inundated with pro-Hillary articles or anti-Trump articles, which is really just reinforcing my view what we really want to do is slow down and come across things that, oh, well, I thought these five variables matter, but this person's saying a different variable matters. Why does that matter? Does it conflict with my view of the world? How does it conflict? Are they right? And then kind of dropping our assumption that we know what's best or dropping the feel good nature of the media we consume, which is, I agree with you. And I mean, that feels great. We get the probably a dopamine rush from that. We're not alone. Everybody agrees with us. But at the end of the day, we're we're as a knowledge worker, you're paid to be right. So it's not about paid to be feel good. It's paid to be. When am I wrong? Recognizing you're wrong. And there's a lot to be said out of scrambling out of problems. Right. And recognizing that you're wrong early and taking course correction instead of waiting till it's too late.
2: So how would somebody listening to this start acquiring a lot of these different tools and mental models? Reading Farnham Street would be a great
3: example of like how to go about it. But I mean, most people go back to reality, right? Most people aren't going to set aside an hour a day and start going through physics textbooks. They're not going to set aside an hour a day of going through biology textbooks. And most people don't have the time with kids and family and work to set aside time to learn on a regular basis, consistent basis. So, the way that you go about it is becoming more open-minded. And one of the ways to become more open-minded is just to read things that disagree with you and not read them in a critical sense of, oh, that's hogwash, but read them in a sense of, oh, that kind of makes sense, right? Like, I really want to take a different approach or, oh, I was wrong and admitting you're wrong. And just, you don't have to admit to the world you're wrong, but admitting to yourself you're wrong is a big step in terms of, getting better at recognizing the cues of the world. And then recognizing how you consume media. Are you consuming it for opinion, which I think a lot of people do, right? We want to show up with a water cooler and we live in a culture where you have to have an opinion on every subject. Otherwise, you're ignorant and uninformed, which is just ridiculous when you think about it. But in that culture, what it creates is this environment where we read these op-eds or we read this headline. And that becomes our opinion. We haven't read the article. We haven't thought critically about it. We haven't spent the time doing the work. And yet we've formed an opinion on it. And I think that that is contrary to the approach that we want to take where – Maybe the way to consume most of the mass media we get is for information. I'm not going to let somebody else do the thinking for me, but they can provide me the statistics that I need to form my own opinions, or they can provide me a structure for an argument that I will then refute or think about critically, but not one that I will regurgitate without having thought about. It's okay to say, I don't know. And then if you really want a fun exercise and you work in an organization of, I would say more than 10 people, I mean, just keep a tally pad in the the last page of your notebook about how many times people say, I don't know. And I mean, I've consulted with organizations big and small, and it almost never comes up. There's almost nobody who's ever said, I have no idea. And that can vary between like, how do you think IBM's doing in their cloud computing space to... How do we design this part better? Everybody has an answer to everything. And once you recognize that, you're like, that's not possible. How can that be the case? There's no way you can understand all of these different things. And then when you recognize that in yourself, it enables you to be more open-minded about other people's opinions. But it's important to probe them. Why are they thinking that? What variables matter to them? Why do those variables matter to them? What would cause them to change their mind? And then when you start thinking about it from another person's point of view, it inevitably creeps into your point of view. And then you start thinking about, well, what would cause me to change my mind? Why do I think what I do? Where does that information come from that I think this? Is it a headline I read on Twitter? Do I really want to base a decision on that? Do I really want to state an opinion on that? And I think that when you start thinking at that level and that, that enables you to move forward in a way that you 're more conscious about what you 're consuming, how you 're consuming it, and the types of decisions and models that you 're adding to your life
2: going back to the the comment you made about how few people say i don 't know uh, I think it's something that that Munger touches on is kind of the idea and it ties in many ways to overconfidence bias uh, but the fact that often you know sort of the most wise <clears throat> the most wise are the smartest people are the ones who typically are like, I don't know. And the least informed kind of most overconfident person is the one who barges in with a, you know, a very concrete opinion about X, Y, Z.
3: Yeah. But when you think about how that manifests itself in an organization, often the the organizational psychology is the one that promotes the person who has an opinion and is right versus, um, it's not because they're right because they've thought about it necessarily. I mean, they could be right just based on odds. Uh, They could be right for the wrong reasons. Uh, And the person who says, I don't know, um, gets left behind. And what I mean by that is saying, I don't know, is an important trait to recognizing and understanding knowledge that doesn't necessarily make it an important trait to getting promoted. And I think when people start distinguishing, well, you know, I want to be smarter because I just want to understand the world better. And I think that's going to help me live a better life. And that in and of itself should, over a long period of time, obviously aggregate into disproportionate rewards in terms of what you value. Maybe that's promotion. Maybe it's level. Maybe it's quality of life, spending time with your family, And maybe it's other things, and that's fine. And, I mean, everybody has their own kind of utility value associated with all of this stuff. The flip side is the person who goes in and, you know, let's say it's a coin toss and just says heads four times in a row. Well, they're going to be wrong a lot, but they'll also be right every now and then. And if they get promoted because they're right but for the wrong reasons, you can kind of accept that. And it doesn't become this, oh, they're better than I am. It becomes this, oh, well, that's just luck, right? They're right for the wrong reasons. That will eventually catch up to them. And then you also need a feedback loop. Like, when am I right for the wrong reasons? And how do I learn from that? And it's that learning and that feedback loop that enables you to compound over time. And most people aren't conscious about learning. They're not conscious about their decisions. They're not conscious about the feedback loop that they employ. So they're not actually getting better at what they're doing. And when you think about driving, driving would be a perfect example. We learn how to drive when we're, I think, you know, it's 16 in Canada, We learn how to drive when we're 16. We probably stop getting better at driving for all effective purposes when we're like 19. Um, And then we spend all this time driving, but we're not practicing. We're not getting the feedback we need to be better. We're just kind of recognizing the cues that we've already learned And I think we do that with decision making. We do it with organizations. We do it with new jobs. We spend, you know, maybe the first year we're getting better at our new job. We're learning about different things. And then all of a sudden we kind of get the hang of it and we stop getting better. We stop the compounding. And when you stop the compounding, that's a really bad thing. What you want to constantly be doing is like, how can we get better and challenging yourself? one of the ways to do that is decision journals, it's to seek outside feedback, it's to ask people how you can be doing better, it's to ask people to coach you, right? Like a lot of people have mentors in organizations. How do you think about this? What should I be thinking about? What are the variables that I should be thinking about? How do I structure this? How do I approach this problem? And if you're really open to it and you're not just asking to kind of be a kiss ass or something like that, then that enables you to get better over time.
2: Um, There's so many questions I want to ask after that. Uh, You know, one of the one of the things that comes to mind immediately talking about the concept of being right for the wrong reasons. uh, I'm a very avid poker player. And one of the biggest lessons that poker taught me was, you know, kind of the difference between winning a hand because you made the right decision or, you know, losing a hand, even though you made the right decision. And kind of what I what I think often in poker is called kind of positive expected value thinking in terms of make the right decision based on the math. And then whatever the outcome is, it's irrelevant at that point.
3: Yeah, it's not always going to work for you. But you also need to be able to tally that, right, to check your view of the world, right? So if you think, you know, I made the right decision, but I lost and I should have won 80% of the time, you need some sort of kind of feedback that you're not making that same decision and losing All of the time, right? You need some sort of check and balance that, yeah, 80% of the time I do win when I make that decision. So, yes, it's a good decision. And not just that you have this comfort in, oh, this is what I believe and it was just bad luck. So you need to actually go a little bit deeper than kind of thinking that way. And, I mean, poker would be a great example where the odds are pretty well known uh, and you can go through that structured, but most of the world isn't as structured. It's not as refined as that. So it becomes more of it like, where was I off? Where was I wrong? And that becomes a very humbling exercise for people. And that humblingness is what often creates or what often leads them to stop the feedback loop. Because there's no you know, CEO who wants to admit that he was right for the wrong reasons or she was right for the wrong reasons. But internally, you need that check and balance in terms of getting better over time so that you can calibrate yourself, calibrate your circle of competence and calibrate your decisions and better understand how the world works. That's the only way I know of to improve your ability to make decisions.
2: So going back to the, the driving example that you used earlier, um, one of the things that I'm fascinated with and I know you've talked about is the concept of deliberate practice and how that, you know, how you can drive for thousands of hours and never improve versus if you sort of concentrate and and do deliberate practice, you can you can grow and achieve and and become better.
3: Yeah, I mean, deliberate practice is so important, right? It's about getting better at little things uh, and seeking feedback that's usually immediate in terms of how you're getting better at it. One of the best ways to do that. I mean, again, I'll, I'll apply it generically to people who work in an organization is don't just send the report your boss asks you for, but seek feedback and specific feedback and you know, kind of corner them and be like, hey, where could I have done better? Where did I do wrong? And if they can't give you that feedback, then you're never going to get better at the job that you're in. And if you can get that feedback, it doesn't necessarily make you better at your job, but it makes you better in your boss's eyes. So it's also about filtering that feedback and going – oh, this is what he or she wants versus, you know, how I think the world works. But you also want to calibrate that. Why does he or she want that? How do I get better at doing what I'm doing every day? How do I get better at sending emails? I mean, how many of us, just for example, send an email to schedule uh, an event or a meeting with somebody or a coffee, and we need 30 emails to do that, right? And we need 30 emails all the time to do that. Why is that? Well, part of the reason is we don't do something simple like hey, here's some proposed dates. Do any of these work for you in the first message? Usually that reduces the number of emails that you need to do that. Well, that's a great feedback mechanism in terms of getting better. And if you deliberately try different things when you're proposing something that you do commonly throughout the day, like 10 or 20 times, then you can start to get feedback on what works and what doesn't work. And you're almost kind of A-B testing things. It's like, it's almost Bayesian, right? Like, here's my best idea today, but does this other idea work? Does it change my understanding of how people will respond to this does it enable me to get to the outcome i want quicker and better and in a win-win way and if yes then let's adopt that and if not then i can revert to my
2: old one i think feedback is such an important idea and and one of the ways that people often get tripped up and i mean again this loops back into a lot of the different cognitive biases but is ego right and kind of denying reality or getting getting caught up in their egos (laughs)
3: I mean we all have ego that's that's incredibly important to recognize. I mean I don't know a person in the world who doesn't have some sort of ego especially wrapped up in their opinion on a controversial subject. Adapting to that reality is incredibly important and recognizing sometimes it serves you and sometimes it doesn't and it's the same as mental models, right? Sometimes they work and they serve you and they, they enable you to make better decisions and sometimes they're wrong. But often we're just coding things into our head that, oh, well, when this happens, do this. But we're not actually saying, well, here are the reasons this happened. Here are the, are, do they exist in this situation? So applying that mental model won't necessarily work. Ego can become this incredible enemy of seeking wisdom. And I don't, I don't have any good ideas, I guess, for how to avoid that from creeping in. I mean, I know people who are naturally very egotistical and know people who are va- very naturally the averse to that, but they both have egos and they're both sensitive in different ways and they both approach the world in different ways. And I think part of it, if you know, I was forced to kind of comment on it, would be understanding where you are and meeting the world at that place and then understanding where you want to be and recognizing the path towards that. And ego can be something as small as I need to give other people on my team a voice and I'm not always right. And part of that comes back to calibration and feedback loops and that helps check your ego and helps humble you in a way. And part of that comes back to saying sometimes I do need to be the egotistical leader. And by egotistical, I mean... Not that you think you're right, but by projecting confidence and by projecting a path forward. In uncertainty, people will naturally gravitate towards people who take risks, who seem to know what to do. And your job is to not only grasp those risks and those situations and those opportunities and move forward and galvanize your team and kind of push forward, but it's to recognize that you may be wrong. Even if you're not projecting that, it's to recognize that maybe it's wrong but here's how I will know I'm wrong. And here's how we'll course correct. If I am wrong, you don't necessarily have to tell your team that, but you have to recognize it internally if you want to be the best version of yourself.
2: So one of the tools you touched on earlier was the idea of a decision journal. Can you explain that a little bit and, and sort of demonstrate or talk about how maybe you use that or how someone listening could potentially use a decision journal to help improve their decision making?
3: most people make decisions and they don't get better at making those decisions and so when you think of an organization you think about how they're going to go about making decisions they'll make the same decisions they'll make them by committee nobody's learning from anybody else nobody's really accountable for the decision and nobody's getting better right i mean that that's the whole. so you end up and when people think about well why do we keep making this same mistake over and over again that would be one of the reasons Nobody wants to be humbled, right? So nobody really wants to keep an accurate decision journal. And by decision journal, we we have a conference called Rethink Decision Making, and we talk about this extensively in there. But what you really want to catalog, and we've created physical decision journals for participants of our conferences. And what we go through is individual decisions. So you can either share them or not. But what you really want to do is start calibrating yourself, and you want to talk about the situation or context of the decision. The problem that you're facing what about it is different why is it a problem? The variables that you think will govern the situation so there's never one there's usually multiple um, the complications or complexity as you see it why are you why do you have to think about this like what are the the factors that you're considering today as you're making the decisions? You want to talk about the alternatives that were um, considered and why you didn't choose them, right? There's never one path. And I mean, we've kind of nailed into this view of, oh, you know, the corporate PowerPoint presentation. I can't tell you the amount of boardrooms I've been in where it's like you have these three options or these two options and it becomes a false duality. I mean, there's way more options than that. We just narrowed them down for simplicity We need to recognize um, that that simplicity isn't always what we want. And we do want to dive into these other options. And then you want to kind of explain to yourself the range of outcomes that you see possible in the situation. And the reason that you want to do that is often you're going to have an outcome that is something that you don't see. Uh, And you want to assign a probability to those outcomes so that you can start to hone your ability to understand yourself, where you make good decisions, where you make bad decisions, and what type of probability you assign to the different outcomes. Then you want to talk about what you expect to happen, like what is the most probable event, or maybe not the most probable, but there's an intervening factor that you think will lead to a different outcome. But you really want to talk about the reasoning behind it. So you want to get into your own kind of self-dialogue about why you think this will happen, when you think it'll happen, and the variables, you know again, tying it back to the variables that you think will govern the situation. And then you also want to keep track of things like the time of day you're making the decision and the mood you're in when you're making the decision because you're not always going to be happy. And you'll probably recognize that most people make better decisions when they're in a certain type of mood, and that mood might vary by the person. What I've learned through implementing decision journals of various organizations and with hundreds of people is that the time of day often affects the quality of decision that you're making. We tend to, again, generalizing, but we tend to make better decisions in the morning than in the afternoon, right? And You can use that for decision theory or you know, depletion of cognitive resources or whatever, we tend to be more mentally alert at the front of the day than the back of the day. So one of the ways that you can take advantage of that is to structure decisions at the beginning of the day, not the end of the day. That simple fact alone will enable you to make an incremental improvement to the quality of decisions that you're doing. And then importantly, it's not about just keeping track of this. You want to review it, right? You want to go back in six months and be like, How did this decision play out? How did I think it was going to play out? How did it actually play out? And what can I learn from this? Do I need to calibrate myself differently? Did I think I was within my circle of competence and clearly I'm not um, because something way outside of the probability that I expected happened? Or do I think that I'm reasonably right but now I can learn or hone my understanding of the situation differently. And when you think about that on an individual level, you'll start learning a lot, right? You don't want to use vague or ambiguous wording. You you don't want to talk in abstractions. You really want to use concrete wording that you can't deceive yourself with later. You don't want to talk about strategies. You want to be specific about what strategy you want to be specific about what variables, um, because that enables you to learn. But when you think about it, Learning on an individual basis is great, but the real value to a corporation is when a CEO or vice president or somebody high up in the organization enables organizational learning so that I'm not only learning from myself, now I'm learning from you. If I had access to your decision journal, Now all of a sudden, I don't necessarily need to make the decisions you're making, but if I had to, I bet you it would be a better decision than if I didn't have access to your thoughts and the variables that you thought and knowing the outcomes that you achieved with those thoughts. And that will enable us slowly over time to make better decisions. Now, better decisions alone aren't enough, right? The world is always changing. So we need to make better decisions on a a relative and absolute basis, but we also need to make slightly better decisions than our competition. And if we can do that and we can do it over a long period of time, well, then eventually we're gonna own
2: the industry. I love the concept of, handicapping the, like putting the handicapping all the probabilities and then coming back and reviewing, you know, how accurate was my prediction that this was, this was a 20% likelihood. This was an 80% likelihood. Oh yeah. That's where
3: most people stop doing it though. Right. So they'll get an outcome. If they get an outcome they thought would happen. And they're like 5% of the time. And it's a decision they've made repeatedly over the last six months or something like say buying a stock, for example, they'll give up right? Or if they get outcomes that they didn't expect, they'll give up. Or if they get the answer right for the wrong reasons, they'll give up. And by give up, I mean they just stop keeping a decision journal because it becomes humiliating. And when you think about decisions in corporations, one of my favorite things to do when I'm in a corporation and consulting or, you know, helping them is to listen to the people involved in the situation And how everything is always right, right? And how they predicted it. And, you know, if I work with you for a year, I can quickly figure out that you didn't predict that for the right reasons. You got lucky. And then just understanding when people are right for the right reasons and when people are right for the wrong reasons and when people have bad outcomes but they're for the right process that enables you to surround yourself with people who can challenge you, who will help you make better decisions over a long period of time. And those are the people you really want to work for,
2: right? So changing gears a little bit, what's one kind of piece of homework that you would give to our listeners?
3: Oh, it becomes self-reflection, right? To one thing that I, I work with people a lot on is just take stock of your day. And I don't mean um, you know, a typical Saturday or something like, how do you spend your day? Are you matching your energy to the task? Are you reading newspapers in the morning and matching your best time of the day to a task that may be low value add for you? Newspapers aren't something to avoid. I mean, everybody works in a different industry. They have different constraints. But if reading the newspaper at 6 p.m. is going to not make a difference, than reading the newspaper at 7 a.m., I would advocate that you maybe need to think about why am I reading it at 7 a.m. Is that a habit? What What is the most productive use of my time at 7 a.m. in the morning? I want to be thinking about something deep, something strategic. I want big chunks of time in terms of how I approach that problem. And I think that that enables you to switch out of automatic mode and it enables you to switch into something conscious and I don't care about what choices people make within reason, obviously. I mean, if they're conscious about those choices, but we usually get into this autopilot and that's how we live our life. And then we wake up at the end and we recognize that, you know, maybe that wasn't the best approach or maybe that wasn't the approach that I wanted personally. And those are the decisions where we want to take a different path. Being conscious about those decisions and inserting a moment in the day on a regular basis where you just do five minutes of self-reflection. You can call it meditation. You can call it whatever you want. You can go sit on the toilet. But what you really want to do is just think about, like, what did I do today? What could have been better about today? Where did I waste my time? How do I waste less time in the future? Where could I have been more productive? Where should I have invested more of my time, my thinking energy? And then being aware of how these things interact over a long period of time. So also taking that and thinking about Well, I spent my time on X today. Why was I dealing with X? Not like, how did I deal with X? And what is the path forward? But why is X an issue? Is it because I made a poor decision in the past? Why did I make a poor decision in the past? Does my environment play a role in that? And start asking yourself questions like that. And then just being open to the response about it. I mean, it's not a dialogue with a friend. You don't have to admit you were wrong to anybody else. You just want to be open to yourself and getting better over time so that you're spending less time doing stuff like that, more time doing what you want to do.
2: I don't know if that helps. You know, that's great. That's That's super helpful. And I think everybody could take five minutes at the end of their day and kind of reflect on what took place and why
3: yeah but nobody does that i mean very well i don't mean nobody but very few people um do that on their own volition and the people that i've helped start it and you know, we do it in an organized and structured way uh, they almost always continue and they say it's one of the most helpful things they've ever done
2: what are some books or other resources that you'd recommend for people who want to kind of follow up or dig down on some of the topics we've talked about today
3: I think Peter Bevelin's book, Seeking Wisdom, is amazing. Uh,
2: One Shelley of my Salmanac. favorite books of all time, by the way, Seeking yeah.
3: Wisdom. Yeah, Charlie's Almanac. I mean, we want to get less out of this. And I mean, I fall into this trap on occasion. Less out of this, I need to read more. And what we want is more about, like, what am I reading? And do I understand it? And is it worth reading to a level of understanding? I mean, I, I've met so many people who tell me that they've read Seeking Wisdom or Charlie's Almanac. But then they do things that would definitely contravene the wisdom in those books. So reading and understanding are two different things. And we want to apply ourselves to understanding. And if you just read the same book, uh, you know, the people who say, and I mean, I was one of them back in 2013, I think I read, or 2014 it was. I I read like 150 books and I must have started 300. But at the end, I mean, one of the biggest lessons, one of the biggest failings I had, one of the biggest lessons I learned And this is almost like a big secret, right, is that it's not the number of books you read. There could have been I could have read five books over the course of the year and actually improved myself more than reading those 152 because you start losing when your goal is to read more books, you start losing track of what it is that matters and the understanding that matters and where does that come from? And then reading Poor Charlie's Almanac. that's not a book you read once and you kind of like chuck on a shelf and reading Seeking Wisdom. You don't read it once and then be like, oh, I got it. It's something that you read, you digest, you try to apply, you read again, you digest, you try to apply. And then through that, you hone your understanding of those ideas. And then you start consuming other information and you map it and you translate it in your mind to the ideas that you've learned, the structure that you've, you've decided to go for. And I think that aside from that, I mean, we, I've moved almost materially to older books. We do a lot less, a lot fewer newer books than we ever used to a lot more of the books that I've been around a long period of time, because that's usually an indication that they contain some sort of wisdom that's enduring or they hit on some point that helps us hone our understanding of a topic that uh, is still relevant. Less about the bestsellers, less about the gawkers, less about the what is the trend of the day, more about what changes slowly over time, more about what am I really interested in, more about do I understand my circle of competence? How can I improve that? I think that that is all individual based. There's no like 10 books I can give everybody to to read and they'll walk away satisfied. It's kind of like a sommelier, right? They, they, you know, if you like white wine and I offer a red, that doesn't make me a good sommelier. It's been, well, it's all individual based and customized to you and what you're trying to achieve and where you are.
2: I think, I mean, seeking wisdom is is probably one of the best books I've ever read. And my copy, I think, every single page has multiple notes, underlines, highlights. Um, I, you know, somebody could probably spend a year just digesting that book or more easily.
3: Oh, totally. I have friends who reread that on a regular basis. And, uh, you know, honestly, I would say that's a large portion of their success is that not only do they reread it, but they understand it and understand the dynamics at play and they apply it to life and they've, you know, become incredibly successful by doing that.
2: Um, Well, where can people find you online? Uh,
3: So we're at FurnamStreetBlog.com, F-A-R-N-A-M Street. Uh, blog.com we do you know three to four posts a week covering everything from art and history uh, all the way to philosophy and psychology and i'm also on twitter which is at fernam street at f-a-r-n-a-m-s-t-r-e-e-t and we're on facebook as well or you can just google shane parish and uh, fernam street uh, crops up as i think the number one uh, link on that and that would be a great uh, way for you to follow along with what we're doing and build your toolkit over time. I would encourage you that if you see an article and you're like, oh, well, I don't agree with this or I don't want to learn about art, that you give it a week or two. I can't tell you the number of times I've had people go, you know, a friend of mine sent me your link and I read it for a day and I was like, oh my God, what is this? And then I read it for a week and I was like, oh, this is really interesting. And then I read it for a month and I'm like, oh, I'm addicted to this. I can't actually get away from it. I've started going back and reading all your old posts Um, because the topic of the day is not necessarily, I mean, our approach is to give you a broad range of solutions or tools, if you will, so that you can build better products or solve different problems. Inevitably, we're going to come across something that you don't agree with or that you think is useless or something you already know. And often we, we contradict ourselves, right? And part of that is getting the reader to do the work of understanding that contradiction. And, you know, we're not giving you, we're giving you 90% of the solution. We want you to do the 10% on your own. And that 10% is where most of the value comes from. Because if I give it to you, you don't actually understand it. It doesn't become part of your life. But by you doing the work, then it becomes embedded in what you're doing and how you're approaching things.
2: Well, Shane, this has been a great interview, and I I really want to say thank you very much for being on here, and I know the listeners are going to love a lot of the stuff that we talked about today.
3: Thanks, Matt. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to it.
2: Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. Listeners like you are what make this podcast possible. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes. Every single review, every single subscription helps us move up in the rankings so that we can reach more people and share our message with them. Lastly, as a thank you to you for being awesome, I am giving away a $100 Amazon gift card. All you have to do to be entered to win is to text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Again, that's SMARTER to 44222. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of the science of success.